The first test is to remember to turn on my mic. The second test is can I get my mask off without knocking the microphone off and my glasses off. This is the challenge of COVID, right? <laughs> Hi, my name is Steve Breedlove, and I have the privilege of being the Bishop of the Diocese of Christ, our hope, and serving this church as its bishop and its clergy. And uh, as Aubrey said at the beginning, I get to come here about once a year, and I love coming here. It's just great to be with you. And if I don't recognize you behind your mask, please remind me of who you are, because I know many of you and have for a while. Uh, we've had a wonderful weekend and a time with uh, Sam and Gina and Aubrey and Janelle and Wilson and Callie. And um, great time meeting with two other brothers yesterday, Eric and Martin, toured the new building, marveled at the work and the dreams and froze my little patush when it was pretty cold yesterday in that concrete place. It's great to be here. This congregation, I don't need to tell you, has been through a tough, tough year. This last week, uh, we, and I say we because all of us on the diocese were fully with you, marked the death of Patrick Hogan. And I do not need to recount in detail all the things that have happened since through this COVID season with Aubrey and Janelle and Sam and Gina and the birth of Shep and Wilson arriving in the aftermath of a severe illness and taking several weeks to regain his strength. I'm also aware because I've been in contact with your clergy and staff that many of you in the congregation have personally faced deep waters in this last year. And I want you to know that you have been loved and prayed for consistently from afar. And the entire team and churches of the diocese have had you in our hearts doing battle on your behalf. And we admire your resilience. We admire your sacrifice and compassion and support and investment in each other's lives. And we admire our God who has given this in you, to you, and through you. Hallelujah. I know it's Lent, but I said it anyway. Please turn with me to John chapter 8 if you have a Bible, and if not, you're welcome to turn the ringer off and look at it on your phone. The gospel text today centers in a bold claim by Jesus, I am the light of the world. And it's a standalone claim that gets our attention, but it is also a context-rich claim, deep with symbolism and massive historical and cultural implications. If you were a first century Jew, in that context, Jesus' words would have literally made your synapses of your brain just start firing in every different direction. Now, you and I cannot re-inhabit generations of cultural context, but we can learn enough that I think our hearts can be lifted with a spiritual inspiration that comes in from, from these words in the context of that history and that culture. Suddenly, this will take on new significance. So let me frame the context before we look briefly at the painting, which is kind of at the centerpiece of this event. This event happened in all likelihood on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three great annual Jewish feasts. There was Passover, Pentecost, and then Tabernacles. Pentecost also called weeks. Tabernacles sometimes called booths. Tabernacles was the last of the annual cycle. And by many counts, it was the most 
culturally popular, similar to the sort of the echoes of the Christian cycle of three great feasts that we have, Easter, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, although Thanksgiving is kind of our American stick in, right? But it's still we claim it. But culturally, Christmas has been co-opted to the degree that it is the, I think, most popular. More happens, more traditions, more celebrations, more money. It's kind of similar with the Feast of the Tabernacles. The core of that festival was seven days of celebratory worship, marking the harvest of the olives and grapes. The wheat and grain harvest, by the way, was in the springtime because they were a winter crop. And the celebration of the wheat and grain harvest was Pentecost. And then in the fall, September, October, our time, olives and grapes were harvested, and that was when the Feast of the Tabernacles happened. And people from surrounding countryside and villages throughout all of Israel and Judea and Galilee would come as family and friends for a reunion centered primarily in thanksgiving, rejoicing, partying. (laughs) Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26, gives these instructions for the festival of the tabernacles. And you may spend your money on whatever your heart desires, on oxen, sheep, wine, and other strong drink. Yes, that's in the Bible. Or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Woohoo! <laughs> Party time. <laughs> no wonder it was the most popular festival, right? People would gather and they would make makeshift shelters of wood and palm fronds and other vegetation. So I want you to kind of go with me in your imagination. So imagine the extended members of the Cohen family, the clan that scattered throughout Judea, would gather year after year for generations near the intersection of Shalom Street and Mitzpah Way. That was where they would locate, right? And this year, spread the word, Miriam and Jehu and their five grown sons and daughters and all their families are going to go out there a week ahead of time and stake out our place. They're going to claim our place. So come on, everybody, let's go. And you just see the people coming in and, oh, I haven't seen you for a year. Hugs, you know, it wasn't COVID. Hugs, (laughs) kissing, all sorts of things. And then they would start the feast, the seven-day festival. I said eight days, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute, because the kind of the activities of the feast happened for seven days. And they were centered in two daily events, the water pouring, or sometimes called the water drawing, and the torch lighting ceremonies. So let me just tell you a little bit about both of those. The water pouring or water drawing ceremony, every morning the priest would fill a huge golden flagon with water from the pool of Siloam and march it in procession through the streets of old Jerusalem and ascend the steps on the south side of the temple complex and carry it to the water gate. Now Sally and I were in Jerusalem last February when COVID hit. (laughs) And it was really interesting. It was an interesting time to be there. But we walked that same route and I've just described for you, and it's a little bit over a kilometer, and it's a steady uphill walk, and then you get to the steps on the south side of the temple, and if you've ever been there, they are steep. It's like, a, it's like a, an ascent, and there's small steps and large steps because people, the idea was is that you would climb up, and you'd have to stop and rest and sit down for a while, and we were not carrying about a 40-pound flagon of water, but the priest would do so And as the procession entered the water gate, there would be three blasts from the shofar, which was the trumpet specifically calling people to joyous worship. 
The priests would enter the temple complex. They would go to the outer altar. They would circle it several times. There were lots of crowds gathered there every morning during the feast. And as they marched around the altar, the Levitical choir would sing the Hallel, the top of their lungs. This was, this was a big deal. The Hallel is Psalms 113 all the way through 118. And the people would join in the singing. And when the Hallel choir, uh, when it reached its climax in Psalm 118, every male pilgrim would shake a bundle of willow and myrtle branches that they had bound together with palm fronds. Like, so just shakers, you know, like shakers. In their right hand with a shaker, their left hand they would hold up a piece of citrus fruit and everybody together would say together, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter it. I thank you that you've answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. <laughs> you get this, you know? We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We say it every Sunday, right? Same phrase. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He's made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. And then everybody together three times, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. They would cry out together. Then the priest would pour out that flagon of water plus a large pitcher of wine that was the daily offering onto the base of the altar. That water specifically symbolized the miraculous provision of water in the wilderness, but also the thanksgivings for another year of adequate rainfall for the forest, that, uh, for the harvest that they had just received. See, Israel's harvest is totally rain-dependent. It's not like the countries on either side of it, Egypt and Babylon, that are both watered by massive riverine systems and the floods that would come up. So those water supplies were dependable, predictable. They never failed. Every year, the Israelites would have to pray for God's blessing because it was completely dependent on rainfall. And they never took it for granted. It was always an occasion for thanksgiving. There was this Jewish maxim current in that time. He who has not seen the joy of the place of the water drawing has never in his life seen true joy. Now, later on that day, shortly after that, a stone's throw from that very altar, the people would gather in the court of the women. If you've been to Jerusalem up at the temple complex, you've probably seen it. There were four huge lamps that were filled with olive oil, and they were lit and they would burst into flame, and they would burn the rest of the day and all through the night. Contemporary accounts say that the lamps were so large that the light gave a glow to the entire city every night of the festival. And each night, families would gather in the light. The Levitical orchestra would let loose, which is a technical Jewish term, you know, musical term, right? They'd let loose. <laughs> and men would ha light handheld torches from the lamps. 
And then they would dance for hours in the women's court while their wives and children stood around and clapping and singing and talking and laughing and maybe sharing some of that wine and strong drink. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, this makes our craziest Christmas celebrations look pretty tame. The end of our Easter vigils, we're just kind of this little whimper. <laughs> Imagine Times Square on New Year's Eve, but seven nights in a row, and the God of Israel is the center of our celebration. It's joy, joy, joy. In that context, John 7, verse 37 on the last day of the feast, now you say, what in the world is the last day? It's actually the eighth day. Because after seven days, the water pouring was done, the torches were extinguished, but everybody stuck, stuck around for day eight. It was the afterglow. Like, I, I, maybe you don't identify with this, but we lived in years for Canada. It's Boxing Day. <laughs> When you open and play with all your presents and you eat the leftovers, which are actually better than they were the day before, and people give gifts to each other on Boxing Day, they box up everything and they take food to each other, and this is an afterglow, and everybody would stick around and reminisce and savor the happy time, don't miss the eighth day. It was actually called the great day, the eighth day. And on that day, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, cried out with a loud voice. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Oh my, and I mean that, oh my. I'll give you everlasting living water a river of life pouring out of your heart. And that statement alone captures three messianic prophecies from Ezekiel and Zechariah about a river that God will split the rock in front of the altar where Jesus is standing and a river will flow and water the entire world. Plus, as John comments in verse 39... Another dozen prophecies about the gift of the Holy Spirit were subsumed in what he said as well. And then pushing it further, turn over to chapter 8, verse 12. I skipped a bunch because at the end of chapter 7, there's just John's commentary on what happens when he says that. And then in chapter 8, there's the woman caught in adultery, which almost every commentator will say happened, but it would happen some other time. And it's stuck in here, kind of out of order. It's an important thing. I don't mean out of order in terms of truth, but out of order in terms of the narrative. Because the narrative picks up in verse 12 of chapter 8 again. Jesus speaks. Again, he speaks. And that ties back to that last great day when he's just declared, I will give you living water. And again, on that same day, after the extinguishment of the lights, after the water stops pouring, after the lights are out and people are standing around in the afterglow, again, what he says is this, I am the light of the world. Not just of Jerusalem, not just a glow at night, I'm the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Brothers and sisters, if we had time, we could riff on the biblical image of light for the rest of the day. Maybe you can play with it around lunchtime or something. In Scripture, light and life are often connected. 
The two are deeply intertwined in biblical imagery. In the creation account, regardless of what you think, how it happened mechanically, what we are told is something that I actually think we need to keep in mind as a reality, that light existed before the light-bearing bodies. And I believe that is fully true in the physical realm. Created life cannot happen without the prior existence of light. Life itself exists eternally within the being of God, life. But God also wraps himself eternally in light. It's light. It's his glory that emanates from his very being, an extension of the being of God by which we can see everything else. It's the medium that exists from God and yet apart from God, extending from God and yet connected and in his very essence. Psalm 36 verse 9 gives us, I think, a way to put this together. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Everything we see and everything that is comes from you, God. And it's only by your existence and your glory that we see anything, even the light we see. John chapter 1 brings that all together and declares Jesus to be the very medium, the emanation, the expression from God, who is God, through which we can see and know God. And he is called the light (laughs) and the life. Colossians chapter 1, he's the visible expression of the invisible God. And that is essentially Jesus' claim in John 8, 12. That's exactly what he's saying. I am, ego ami, the great recapitulation of Yahweh, the transliteration of Yahweh from the Old Testament. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that was another synapse that went off. Stick with me here. Israel's history was marked powerfully by God as light. He reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. The Exodus wanderings, the nation was led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. That was not two pillars. It was one pillar. At the center in the heart was fire, glory, light that was so fierce, if it had to be shrouded by cloud or it would have been unbearable. It would have destroyed everybody in its way. And so there was cloud. And in the daytime, that's what you primarily saw was the cloud. But at night, the glow and the light of the fire dominated. And what was the command given to the nation for its survival? Follow the pillar. Follow the pillar. That's your protection. That's your guidance. That's the presence of God. Jesus, I am the light of the world. Whoever, come on, follows me will have the light of life. The Jews of Jesus' day could not but help immediately put the pieces together. This was bold, audacious, authoritative. I don't have time in these next few minutes to dig into the ways that Jesus backed up that claim. It goes all the way to verse 30. He's backing up his claim. Let me give you the categories of his proof, just four, four quick ideas. His origins, he backs it up by his origins from eternity in heaven. His mission, directly sent by God to do the work of God and say the words of God. 
his oneness and unity with the Father, and then his return to eternity and heaven. And I do want to just at least read one verse on that last, his return to eternity in heaven. Verse 28, John chapter 8 says this, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Full stop, I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. The utter unity that Jesus has with the Father and the complete submission of Jesus to and harmony with the Father, that was his, that was his whole life on earth, and that culminates in his self-oblation on the cross. When he does the will of the Father to provide atonement for the sins of the world. At the moment that he dies on the cross, he steps from his mission on earth back onto the road that will lead to his exaltation, his ascension, and his glorification at the right hand of God. And that is the final vindication of his identity, his words, and his work. He says, when, you, when I am lifted up, starting with the cross, then you will know I am. You will know I am. And we today know I am, Jesus is I am, because of the cross, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is bold, it's provocative, it's authoritative, it demands a decision, demanded a decision of the people then. Most of the people said, no, we're not interested, we don't believe you. It demands a decision of us. It demands a decision of our world. But I also want you to remember something, and I want you to please hear this as we close out. It is also a gracious promise. It's a profound hope. Because I want you to keep in mind that the festival of the tabernacles makes it clear that light is a source of joy. Around, the, around those torches... People were dancing, celebrating, laughing. They reminded the nation of God's commitment, his presence, his protection, the gift of life, guidance, care, commitment. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to remember those things today. God is committed to us. He is as faithful as the sun coming up every day. The light that breaks every day reminds us of the dependability of God, the faithfulness of God, the care of God, the heat from the sun which thaws our world and eventually brings back life from the ground, reminds us of his commitment to bless everyone and everywhere with his protective care and his love and his deep joy. We are in Lent. It is purposely a time of quietness and reflection and penitence and even sacrifice. But that does not mean that we are sitting in the darkness without hope. Our purpose of Lent is to know even more clearly the light of God's presence. To hear even more clearly the words that our ears may be unstopped, as it says in Isaiah chapter 50, that we will listen more attentively to the words of God, will embrace more fervently the life of freedom and love that comes from walking in the light. Lent is a season of quietness, but it's not a season of darkness because it's intended at all times to draw us ever nearer to Jesus. And I want you to say with me in your hearts again who Jesus is. I am the light of the world. Amen.